What a wonderful thing it is that Jesus invited us to pray to our Father. We're able to do that um, because of the lineage of the church, and we're able to do that because of our personal commitment to Jesus. Who can avoid the thinking of the shootings in the USA? Lord God, we pray for those who have been harmed by it. We pray, Lord, for peace above all. We pray for respect, Lord, in that nation. We pray for the opportunity for Christian witness. And we pray for the families, Lord, the families of those who have suffered the shootings themselves and the families of those, Lord, who have to deal with violence within their own families. And Lord, as we think about what's happened in the USA, we consider our own nation as well. We pray, Lord, that there'll be changes in our own nation that will result in peace and respect and the opportunity for Christian witness. And we pray for the families in our church, Lord. Father, we also think about the federal election as things linger on and we seem to be heading for a result. Lord God, above all, we want a government that honours you. Lord, we know that whatever people's positions politically or ambitious nature in people as well, Lord, we know that you can change anyone. And we ask that, Lord. We ask that even in the process of the election coming to some sort of resolution, and even as people trade with each other about what they'll get and what they'll do, I pray, Lord, that you will intervene. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will touch souls. I pray, Lord, that people will find themselves doing what you want rather than what they want for themselves. Lord God, we pray for the local area as well. We pray above all, Lord, that people may come to know you. We pray for the progress of the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray for the healing in our area, Lord, uh, the healing of the hurting in our area. Lord God, we declare that you are a God who heals. You are a God whose love is beyond comprehension. We know, Lord, that your project is still going forward and we love to be a part of it. And finally, Lord, I pray for the unity of all believers. Lord, these are days when we cannot afford to be um, split either within ourselves as a church or beyond to those who actually do believe in Jesus Christ. Lord, it, it, it's a thing that is far beyond us in our natural state. But God, we call upon you in the name of Jesus Christ to bring the unity of belief that comes within you and on your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been observing various passages in Acts that highlight the Apostle Peter and his dynamic role in the early church. 
Two weeks ago, we examined Peter and John before the Sanhedrin in chapter 4 as they faced authorities for healing a lame man and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Today, we are leaping over to chapter 10 and a significant incident that occurred for Peter, Cornelius and the early church. Quite a lot has happened in the narrative up to this point. And if you imagine a television screen fast-forwarding through a series of events, we have the ongoing growth and development of the early church. Lots and lots of corporate prayer. The apostles boldly sharing the gospel. The church community increasing in love and unprecedented generosity to the point where no one has any need. There is the Ananias and Sapphira Pinocchio incident, which didn't finish well for either of those two. Plenty of healing miracles, more appearances before the Sanhedrin, choosing of the seven men full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit, often referred to as the appointment of the first deacons, one of whom was Stephen, a passionate believer in Jesus, whose historic exposition of Israel's fulfillment realised in Christ and criticism for resisting the Holy Spirit results in his death by stoning. Another of the seven was Philip, who baptises an Ethiopian eunuch. There is plenty of persecution thrown in for good measure. And finally, we have the pivotal moment of Saul's conversion. This brings us up to chapter 10. Now, all of that is to simply to say that a lot has happened thus far. And the Peter and Cornelius incident certainly doesn't happen in a vacuum, but with the backdrop of growth, grief, progress, and all of the unexpected twists and turns that come from forging ahead a new world movement, soon to be known as Christianity. The central figure in today's story is a Roman centurion named Cornelius, a devout man who feared God along with his whole household. He was generous to the poor and needy and prayed constantly to God. Cornelius lived in Caesarea, a seaside city heavily populated by Gentiles with a prominent Roman culture. Jews despised Caesarea. A centurion was a person of influence and commanded large numbers of Roman soldiers. The New Testament looks favourably upon centurions. The first Gentile that Jesus witnesses to is a centurion, and it was a centurion who said at the cross, surely this man was the Son of God. Cornelius was a God-fearer. He had incredible regard for the Jewish God and lived accordingly. He was a man of prayer and generosity. In fact, the short description of Cornelius summarizes the great commandment given by Jesus to love God and to love neighbor. And we see Cornelius doing both of these things. However, he was a Gentile. He was not born a Jew nor, he, nor had he been circumcised and converted to Judaism. 
In chapter 10, verse 3, we read that God heard the prayers of Cornelius and had taken note of his generosity towards the poor. In a vision, Cornelius sees an angel instructing him to send men to Joppa to bring back Simon Peter. The following day at about noon, as these men were on their journey, Peter went up onto his roof to pray. We might think that a roof is a rather odd place to pray. But back then, the roof was probably the equivalent of a backyard. It was somewhere away from the regular family activity. As it was lunchtime, understandably, Peter was feeling hungry. The text explains that as the meal, no doubt inside the house, was being prepared, he fell into a trance, something like a daydream, and saw heaven open up with a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. The sheet contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as birds and reptiles. A voice then told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Peter refuses the offer. Surely not, Lord. Lord, I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice then rebukes him, saying, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Unsurprisingly with Peter, this incident occurs three times before the sheet was taken back to heaven. And this, Peter is left wondering what the meaning of this vision was all about when the Spirit speaks to him and some men who are about to arrive at his place and persuades him to go with these men to Caesarea. The men representing Cornelius turn up. And Peter invites them inside to be his guests. This brings us up to where today's reading is from. I'm going to invite Bob to come forward and read from Acts 23b through to 48. Thanks, Bob. So this morning I'm reading from the NIV version, and as Joel said, from verse 23b. The next day Peter started out with them and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and his close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said, I am only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or to visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without rising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour, at three in the afternoon. Suddenly, a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. 
Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realise how true it is that God does not show favouritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent out to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord in us. You know what has happened through the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was in him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets te testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of them being baptised with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. This is the word of our Lord. To appreciate the significance of this incident, we need to understand something of the huge divide that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles. One writer observes, no ethnic religious divide in the Roman Empire during the first century AD was more pronounced and fraught with tension than that between Jew and Gentile. Yahweh had called and covenanted and established the Israelite and Jewish people. When God came to Abraham about 2,000 years before Christ was born, as recorded in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, God promised Abraham that he would have descendants through whom all nations of the earth would be blessed. This promise was made again to Isaac, Abraham's son, and then to Jacob, Isaac's son. Jacob was later given the name Israel. His descendants became known as the Israelites and later as the Jews. The Israelite Jewish people had been established and set apart by and for God's purposes. He was their God. So you had Jews and everyone else was a Gentile. And there was very much an us and them mentality. You're either one of us or you're one of them. 
Before this groundbreaking incident with Cornelius and Peter, the apostles never would have entertained the notion that Jesus fully intended to incorporate the Gentiles over here into a newly formed Israel. Their mission, rather, was to convert Jews, to help them see that Jesus was the promised Messiah and to trust in Him for salvation. That some Gentiles might be saved was not really a question they would have entertained. So with this framework in mind, consider this. Peter enters a house in a region despised by Jews, full of Gentiles, all eager to hear what he had to say to them. And Peter begins right off the bat by acknowledging their divide. You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Peter indicates right here that the Jewish attitude towards Gentiles was that they were impure and unclean. And what would a good Jew do with someone who was impure and unclean? They would keep their distance. They would have nothing to do with such a person. Well, God clearly was not happy with this attitude. And Peter gets that to a point, but he is still unsure as to why Cornelius has sent for him. Cornelius then retells his version of events, including the vision he had from God. And I wonder how Peter reacted to this piece of information. It was one thing for a God-fearing Gentile to pray to God, but for God to speak back was another thing entirely. God had indeed heard and acknowledged Cornelius's prayers. Now, Jesus indeed ministered to plenty of Gentiles. As early as the infant narrative in Luke, there is a dominant theme that runs right throughout Luke and Acts that God in the person of Jesus came for both Jew and Gentile. But the apostles had not fully grasped this yet. Perhaps they thought there were exceptions to the rule, but that was it. Cornelius goes on to explain to Peter that the reason he sent for him was because that's what God had told him to do. You know when you try and put a coin in a vending machine, how sometimes you have to jam it to get it in, or you place it in and it keeps coming down to the change section, <laughs> and then eventually it drops where it was meant to go. And for Peter, this was that moment where the penny drops, so to speak. His vision and Cornelius' vision aligned and Peter realised how true it is that God does not show favouritism but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Peter then very excitedly switches into sermon mode and preaches the gospel about Jesus Christ, 
which he'd become so familiar with doing. Peter did not even have an opportunity to extend an invitation to repent and receive Christ. The Holy Spirit quite spontaneously fell upon the listeners and a Gentile Pentecost occurs. Peter's Jewish buddies who had accompanied him to Cornelius' place are left with their jaws hanging low. Peter responds in a similar fashion to how Philip had reacted to the Ethiopian's request to being baptised. Why not? Surely no one can or should stand in their way of being baptised. Submission to Jesus as Lord and Saviour results in receiving the Holy Spirit and expressing one's newfound faith through water baptism. Has this been your experience? Have you received the Holy Spirit in all His fullness? Have you been water baptised? If not, I wonder what is standing in your way. Luke, the author of this story, recounts it three times. There is the story proper in chapter 10. Peter then retells the story in chapter 11. And then reference is made yet again to this incident at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. This is clearly a pivotal moment in the young church's life and will certainly set the stage for Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. But let's not also forget that here we see Peter yet again using his metaphorical keys, if you will, to open the gates wide to heaven for all who would believe and receive in Christ. Now the purpose, brothers and sisters, of this series has been to observe Peter's approach to sharing the life-changing message of Jesus. There is much that we can learn from this story to inform our approach to sharing Jesus with others. So what practical application might there be for us today? God spoke to both Peter and Cornelius when they were engaged in prayer. Now, this shouldn't come as a surprise, but it does remind us that prayer is to be a two-way conversation. We don't just speak, we also listen. Any meaningful human conversation requires two parties to both speak and listen. It should be no different with God. Whilst it is true that God continues to speak through His Word, which is absolutely our primary source for hearing, God also speaks by His Spirit to us at certain times and in certain ways, just as He did with Peter and Cornelius. Maybe it will be in the form of a dream or a vision. It may be through another believer. It may be through His Spirit whispering to us. But God does speak to His people through a variety of means and ways. When we find ourselves 
in our or on our roof, that place where we can remove ourselves from common distractions and come before the Lord in prayer, our hearts are best attuned to hear from Him. Now, I fully appreciate this is not always so easy to do. This is actually one of the goals of the upper room, is to create a space where we can come together, uninterrupted, for a period of time that enables us to listen to the heart of God. Prayer gets us in tune with God and therefore responsive to His leading. It is significant that Peter went to pray at noon, as this was not one of the prescribed times for Jewish prayer. Peter was obviously a person of prayer and he was looking for opportunities and found places where he could pray. The discipline of lingering in the presence of God to hear his voice is something we would do well to prioritise in the midst of our busy schedules. Now, in particular, it was through Peter's prayer time that God convicted him to share the good news with Cornelius. And this says to me that our prayer life is intrinsically tied up with our mission of sharing the gospel. We can never disconnect our private and our public faith and witness. This story is essentially about God breaking down barriers that had prevented people from coming to him fully and accepting Christ as Lord. It serves as a reminder that God has no favourites and that his salvation is available to all people. The belief that emerged from this incident, affirmed at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, is summarised in Paul's declaration in Galatians 3.28 where we read, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you all are one in Jesus Christ. I wonder, what modern day barriers do you think we can put up that might prevent people from coming to Christ? Any ideas? Was that sorry, Phil? Judgment. Smoking and drinking. Discrimination. Technology. Pride. Fear. Hate. You know, there are probably some that are more obvious than others. I've got two. Firstly, coming to church. We might feel that in order for a person to meet Christ, they need to come to church. Now, it's not a, by any stretch of the imagination suggesting, suggesting we don't want people to come to church, nor that 
involvement with Christian community and church community isn't important when somebody does come to faith, by all means it is. But perhaps this is an unnecessary barrier. For some people, coming to church is a barrier. So what are we going to do about that, friends? (laughs) All of the research shows us that we can't just sit and wait for them to come to us. We no longer live in those times. I think sometimes we expect people to behave like Christians before they've become Christians. So what I'm talking about here is a barrier of behaviour and attitudes. We can, or unfortunately, have been perceived to be very judgmental of non-Christians, of their attitudes, of their behaviours, of their lifestyles. We are judging them by our standards. I have three reflections on this. Number one, we have no right to judge. It is not our role. Number two, we can't expect people to embrace or live by Christian values if they don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them, transforming them into the likeness of Christ. Three, I think we ought to have higher standards of ourselves. Sadly, Christians have often created unnecessary and unhelpful barriers for people coming to Christ because of their hypocrisy. Now, of course, none of us are perfect. We are all flawed and we all equally depend on Christ's forgiveness. But surely, as those who have this as their claim... Jesus is Lord. Ought our lives and our attitudes, ought they not look a whole lot different from those who have not yet accepted and embraced Christ as Lord? Brothers and sisters, our love for all people, regardless of their race, religion or lifestyle, ought to be exemplary. Finally, God changes minds. God changed Peter's mind in a big way. What a dramatic shift this was for him. We can see from this incident that he was a devout Jew, continuing to uphold Jewish dietary requirements. Peter's Jewish background and upbringing had him believing one thing about Gentiles that was in fact not in alignment with the heart of God. We see that because of Peter's prayer life and closeness to the Lord, that he was open and willing to having his mind changed where and when it was in conflict with the Lord's. This incident closely corresponds to what we class as church tradition or culture. 
versus the truth of Scripture. Now, we might think that we're not a church full of traditions. That's the Catholics. Uh Uh-uh. There's a lot of church tradition and culture, and particularly for those of us who have been brought up in the church, we're not even aware of it. The church has several traditions that are not necessarily scriptural. But after decades, even centuries of practice, we can unhelpfully become dogmatic about such things. (laughs) Am I not right? (laughs) Never is it more important for us to be aware of such traditions and cultures when it comes to sharing our faith, when it comes to creating an environment that is welcoming and accessible for people who have not yet come to have the Holy Spirit dwell within their hearts. One of our goals is to have worship services and, in fact, a whole worship church culture that is accessible to people in our community. Now, at the moment, we have a really significant focus on the intergenerational element of that. It is certainly my desire and the leadership team's collective desire that Erina Community Baptist Church be a church where people of all ages can feel welcomed, can feel as though they can participate and contribute. This is a journey that we're on. We have a long way to go. But this is only one aspect of being accessible. There are a range of other areas that we will need to examine where we are not accessible for people. And it's going to get uncomfortable, I think, for us at times. Because things may not look or feel how they're supposed to look or feel. You know, there were a few of us who went to the Revive Conference a number of years ago. And one of the speakers there spoke about a dynamic transformation that occurred in his church family where all of a sudden people could no longer leave wallets and keys and iPads on chairs because the kinds of people that they were starting to attract were the kinds of people that would end up with those wallets and keys and iPads in their pockets. Now, on one hand, we say we would love to have that. We would love to see people coming in from the community who are not yet accepting of what we would consider Christian values (laughs) and yet... If such people did start to come and be part of our community, I wonder how accepting we would then be of that. We are very comfortable. And God is working amongst us. May God, by His Holy Spirit, continue to work amongst us. And a little bit like Peter, change our minds when practices and attitudes and behaviours that we hold dear 
or we hold even unconsciously can serve as a barrier or a prevention to people coming to faith. If God could change the Apostle Peter's mind, then surely we must allow room for the fact that he might just change our minds on various matters, should he choose to. And like Peter, we need to remain open to hearing the Lord's voice in prayer and demonstrate a willingness to admit when we are wrong, accepting the Lord's correction and instruction. So, men and women of God, may we be people of prayer who learn to listen to the Lord's voice and leadings. May we seek to remove any unnecessary barriers that may prevent people from coming to faith in Christ. And may we be prepared to accept that we don't have God all figured out. That maybe in His time and His wisdom, He will change our minds on blockers and barriers to faith and the gospel going forward. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us all as we seek to be His hands and His feet. Amen.